Radio Show, brought to you by People G2, a company dedicated to helping all businesses with their people-related decisions. They do that by giving clients access to the best human capital, due diligence and background checks available, unprospective candidates, business partners, tenants, and more. To learn more, simply visit www.peopleg2.com. Today, we're privileged to have with us the founder and president of People G2, Chris Dyer. Hey, Chris. Good afternoon, and thank you for tuning in to the Talent Talk Radio Show and for joining me as I talk to two great guests today. It might be wintertime and I have a cold, but it seems to be over 90 degrees outside, so who knows what's going on, but we'll, uh, we'll, try, to, we'll try to make it through the show. <laughs> All right, so Talent Talk really centers around the topics of talent recruitment and management, talk a little bit about leadership development and a lot about company culture and employee engagement. So these are all really timely topics that we know that CEOs and entrepreneurs and HR pros, uh, really any business leader is, is out there talking about. So I hope that you'll tune in here uh, each week, uh, whether it's live to the broadcast uh, that we push through TuneIn or you can, uh, most people get us through the podcast on iTunes or through any app or directly on the iHeartRadio website. So Uh, Hopefully there's something here that you can take away and will help impact your own career in a positive way. So, you know, usually I get to meet some of these leaders we have on the show. Sometimes they get recommended to us where we find out about them through other other means. But usually what ends up happening is that person and I have a conversation. And there's a lot of questions that I ask them and a lot of great wisdom that they end up giving me. And I really put this show together so that instead of me being the only one who gets it or having to listen to just me regurgitate what they said, I have them on to hopefully have a, an engaging conversation where you might pick up something that you can use you know, in your office tomorrow or in an hour or down the road at some point. The uh, show, as I mentioned, is uh, live here every Tuesday, 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, and it can be accessed, uh, again, on that podcast, on iTunes, or any, any way you can get to iHeartRadio. Uh, we've amassed such a great following. I think we're up 275,000 of you came in last week and interactive with one of our episodes and we really appreciate uh everyone who's uh coming in listening and enjoying uh what we're putting out there so a big thank you to everybody if you have a question for one of our guests today uh there are two guests and uh, you can submit it via twitter so just go on twitter doesn't matter if you have any followers or not just type in your question and just make sure you add the hashtag talent talk or you add in the at people g2 either way that would cue mike to see the question uh, Mike, my producer, and he can uh, shoot it over to me, and we'll try to feed it in the show. All right, so now we've gone through all the business. Let's get down to the the real reason we're all here, and that's to find out some great things from my two guests. Uh, my first uh, guest will be uh, Donald Kahn, President and CEO of, uh, surprise, Donald Kahn Associates. And then we'll have uh, Lynn Knight, President of Talent Function. So Lynn will join me in the second half of the show after we have a little commercial break. But let's go ahead and get to our uh, first guest. Donald, welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. Uh, thanks for the invitation. Uh, it's an honor to be here. So tell everyone a little bit about yourself, your company, and what's uh, you know kind of your strategy here in the HR and talent management space for this year. Sure. Well, I've been at this whole talent management thing for nearly 25 years now. Uh, most recently, I was chief learning and talent officer for a multi-billion dollar spin-off of what was GE Plastics and Silicones. Uh, and after that, uh, it was purchased from a private equity firm. I, I created a scratch, uh, a global corporate R&D function, 
and that was during the economy of 2008, so that was fun. And I, I think we did quite well, actually. The corporate university won uh, quite a few uh, industry awards, and I was uh, honored to be named uh, uh, Vanguard uh, Executive of the Year um, from Chief Learning Officer Magazine. Uh, and on the talent side, I led the integration of talent through a handful of mergers and acquisitions. Uh, but at the time, I was, I was increasingly frustrated with the... Uh, the selection and quality mostly of the training vendors when it came to managing talent across cultures, so on a global level. Uh, most were, well, they were either academic types, moonlighting as consultants, or obsessed with models and theories, uh, or they were canned leadership programs that were very specific to one culture, uh, the leadership best practices of, uh, uh, of a host or a home culture. Uh, and uh, so I ended up designing a lot of these global-level programs myself and with my in-house team. Uh, and, and as I was networking, giving keynotes on industry conferences, things like that, with the fellow execs, I found out I wasn't alone. I uh, shared those frustrations with many. So uh, about five years ago, I talked a handful of those execs to jump the uh, entrepreneurial cliff with me, and we started up Donald Khan Associates to fill those gaps. Well, and, and Donald, sounds like you're like maybe on a speakerphone a little bit. It was, um, I don't know if you have a chance to pick up a, the phone or not, it might be a little bit clearer, but you know, it sounds like fascinating. And, and, you know, this is something we've talked about on the uh, show a lot with uh, execs that deal with uh, the, the global culture so that they have their culture inside their company and then they have these subcultures um, that can be a, by division, that can be by department. And that can be just actually culturally, right? So it's really interesting you bring up the that idea that you know there may have been programs involved with well, how do we deal with our employees in Japan or how do we deal with our employees in China or things like that. But you're looking at it from a more holistic standpoint uh, and delivering those tools. So you know, it, I imagine that that's one of your selling points. Are there other things that you know you really see your company doing differently than what other companies like you were doing? Well, sure, and uh, great question. So I mentioned what was out there in the market uh, and that most of those programs, especially when it talked on either the leadership style or talent practices, they were based on home cultures, which, frankly, usually were wherever your headquarters is located. Uh, and that's also true for sales and marketing programs, by the way. Uh, so uh, I started the company to fight that trend, uh, but we're also all award-winning former Fortune 500 execs, so we've actually practiced what we preach a bit. Uh, and that means we tend to be very pragmatic, uh, less theory, and a lot more action items. Uh, you know, we've negotiated works councils in, in Germany, or uh, we've uh, built competency models in Japan and Brazil that worked in California as well. Um, uh, but probably the biggest difference is our business model. It um, Basically, at the end of the day, our clients own the work the, and the work product that's delivered, and they can deliver that in the future as they need. So uh, everything we do is so custom, uh, customized to each business footprint or each business that, truthfully, we probably couldn't use it if we wanted to. And that's, uh, that model of user licenses and things like that just drove me crazy when I was in-house. So uh, that's not what the clients need, and at the end of the day, it's theirs, it's not ours. And so as you're helping these people on, on this global level, uh, are there some consistent keys that you see that companies need to, to do well in order to manage a global workforce? I mean, it sounds like there's some, some real uh, specificity that might need to happen from company to company, but 
are there kind of some gold standards that you see that you know companies might want to put in place that will generally bode pretty well for their their global workforce? Well, absolutely. I mean, we spend a lot of time as a profession talking about corporate culture or company culture, uh, but the reality is, in a in a global workforce, the local social and workplace norms. Uh, uh, will probably shape their experience and impact their workplace behaviors a lot more than a logo on their paycheck. Uh, so uh, I think we often do a pretty lousy job sometimes at adapting to those cultural differences. The same best practice that might uh, work very well in the U.S. may actually be counterculture and a bad idea to implement in India. All right. So uh, um, this is especially true for leadership, uh, and uh, you see this quite a bit as far as uh, we try to centralize uh, our shared service models in the talent management space, and I get that. It's, it makes sense for economies of scale and efficiency, and those arguments definitely have merit. However, uh, the counter-arguments are true as well. If you want to, uh, to centralize your comp and benefit function, uh, there's, uh, it's going to be hard to do. There's an awful lot of variances in local labor laws and regulations. Uh, you can centralize your performance management function as far as you need a consistent vision or mission, uh, a mission, things like that. But uh, the, the real-world procedures have to be flexible enough on how you give feedback in Japan versus Germany because those things are very different. Uh, same thing with the L&D function. You see it all the time where a class gets designed at headquarters and it was a smashing success in, for example, the U.S., but you roll that same content out in China and uh, it's less effective. So really adapting to those cultural norms, not corporate culture, but social cultures are sacrosanct to uh, effective talent management. Yeah, absolutely, and those are, those are great suggestions. I mean, I, I just recently was, you know, we're kind of reminded about some of the differences, just to say, from the average culture in America to maybe Japan, and just right. I mean how direct we tend to be, and then how indirect maybe they tend to be, and how having to make that switch. So you may be delivering uh, a message internally to a group of people here, but if you're going to go to Japan, you may need to deliver that message differently, even if the goals are the same, even though what you're asking them to do is the same. It sounds like you know what we have to be really worry about is, is it's how we ask it's not as much about making sure we're tying them to the same uh, goal or thought or purpose but it's it's how in which we do that and how we are maybe sensitive to to their interpretations culturally as you mentioned is that is that kind of what you're saying there yeah you're spot on and and truthfully uh, we often confuse the concept of culture with natural or national borders, right? So, you know, we'll often use terms like is it a domestic rollout or a global rollout and things like that. And uh, I, I try to avoid those uh, because even domestically, that's a relative term, right? I mean, depending uh, where you're speaking from, uh, in the U.S., your workplace experience in Mississippi is going to be different than New Jersey or Hawaii. So even across national borders, there's a lot of what, you know, subcultures that, that impact how you give feedback or how you design training programs or delegate or all those leadership concepts. Uh, so I tend to use uh, uh, 
a concept called dimensions of culture to get a little more granular to, to be able to, to design programs specifically around certain behaviors. Uh, you know, it's not my idea. Uh, the father of a lot of culture studies uh, uh, is Dr. Gert Hofstede, and he, uh, in the 80s, pretty much invented the concepts. But uh, there's a difference in how uh, people manage time. You know, if a meeting that's going to start at 8 o'clock in Italy versus Brazil versus Japan or Switzerland, people arrive at different times. Uh, and how uh, do they prefer to work in teams or in individual culture or uh, how they respond to conflict and stress or how, as the one you mentioned, Chris, how assertive you can be uh, to speak up to your colleagues and peers or your, your boss. So there's a lot of different what's called dimensions of culture that really transcend uh, borders uh, So it's in it, it, labor laws. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I want to talk about one thing I noticed on your website. It referred to this term of bubble assignment. So really the challenges of short-term international engagements for employees. So can you talk a little bit about that and kind of how that plays in, into what we're talking about now? Absolutely. So if you're not familiar with the term, uh, bubble assignment is generally a two- to six-month term, uh, short-term international assignment. So, uh, yeah, you mentioned it's on our website. I think uh, originally that white paper was uh, published from, I can't remember if it was HR.com or HRIQ. You can Google it, but uh, it's out there as well. So uh, uh, basically, one of the big challenges is the length or duration of the assignment itself. Uh, I use these very successfully in large companies, especially when you link them to things like succession planning. Uh, so if you have a leader that's being groomed for a larger or more global role, these are perfect. Uh, if you have an assignment that's too short, uh, so maybe a three or four work a, a week assignment, it comes across almost as a, as a big vacation. And they get to see a lot of the surface behaviors but not the reasons why. Uh, however, if you do this also as too long of an assignment, maybe over six months, there's a couple things there. You have to deal with relocation or some logistics and cost behind that. Uh, but it also can lead to something called culture shock, which is you start seeing the the, the negatives compared to your home culture. Uh, now, if you have a long-term expat assignment, you'll get past that and you'll be able to have a balanced view. But if you only do an uh, assignment that is maybe seven months, they'll be into that negative phase. But the other big challenge of that is it requires scale. And if, uh, last time I checked the World Trade Organization stats, and it's been a little while, uh, well over uh, half of all multinational companies have less than 250 employees. Uh, so a bubble assignment works very well if you are a Fortune 500 company in 100 countries, uh, but it's a little harder of a strategy if you are in four countries and have 200 employees. Yeah, absolutely. And I imagine it can, it's really kind of fascinating you talked about that you, potential for negativity in that six, seven month role. And I, I imagine that, that some of that is if you're going to be there a long time, you start to accept things as they are what they are and you're not going to change them. But if it's six or seven months, I could see they just start to really wear on you and you just, now you're all you're thinking is how long until I get to go home? That's How long right. until I get to act, go back to what I'm used to and have a piece of pizza or whatever? I mean, just the, these small things that we take for granted that suddenly if you're in the middle of Malaysia or in the middle of 
of Mumbai or wherever you may be, if you're used to being in New York or Boise, Idaho, or wherever it may be, that those things can really start to play on you if you don't have that long, that kind of long runway to think about them. Exactly. And, and the timing and duration is very specific to also the scope of duties that you're doing while you're overseas. Uh, basically, there's a concept called a brownout. Uh, there's a lot of psychology behind these terms, and they're well documented. Uh, there's the you know the beginning stage where you're excited to, and it's exotic, and it, it feels like a vacation and travel. And then you start seeing uh, after a few months, you start being a little more homesick and starting to see the negatives compared to your home culture. Culture, and if you end the assignment there, uh, then if it goes too long and they get into that brownout period, uh, it'll become actually a counterproductive assignment because there's a, a negative bias. So either do it uh, for two to six months uh, or a longer-term expat assignment where they're there long enough that they work through that and uh, they can truly acculturate or assimilate into that culture. And, and you imagine from the company's perspective, they probably think this, you know, if they hadn't thought about it in the way in which you're presenting it, Six months might be perfect because it's, like you said, not a vacation, and it's enough time that they're going to have – they should be able to get immersed in the culture and understand things better, but yet not gone away so long that they maybe have to permanently move them. Uh, there might be some advantages there legally uh, with right. the countries that they're going in. And so the companies may be, may be tempted to throw people into these four- to six-month assignments because it just makes so much other uh, sense – and not thinking about it in the way in which you kind of mentioned those, those other drawbacks where you've essentially just pushed them into a negative position right. um, and they're going to come back with, with almost all but, you know, but negatives. And, Chris, there's some logistics behind that, too. I mean, not to bore uh, people with tax codes and things like that, but often many countries, if you uh, have someone working for more than half a year or six months, that impacts payroll and tax repercussions, things like that, but also personal lives. Uh, I, in the perfect world, world, an optimal length for me is around three months uh, because you get all the benefits, but it's also short enough that employees with families and, and personal lives, uh, you don't, uh, it's not so onerous that you can, you can still manage that and keep your mortgage or rent uh, in your home country. Well, I remember I had a friend that told me many years ago worked in Zurich, and he said the hardest part about it, because I think he was there two or three years, is they kept sending him out of the country every five or six months for three or four weeks, and so he would have to go somewhere else to go work for this whole tax reason or whatever. You know, there was some logistic reason, and so that was the hardest part, because he had to leave the family behind for that long period of time, and then you know, they were finding excuses to send him all these different places, and it just, you know, it was... You're, you're sort of playing a game, and it wasn't very efficient for everybody else who was in the game. Sure. So, yeah. Chris, you mentioned one of the biggest challenges. I see that quite often in that an employee will go over for two or three months for a bubble assignment, but they still have their regular job duties or, or try to maintain them back home. Uh, so they're actually doing two jobs instead of one for those three months, and uh, that can be a recipe for disaster. So and it sounds like your, your colleague had some of that experience. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, I know uh, throughout your career, you have done a lot of work in, in employee development. So maybe you could share here, we're getting towards the end, but, you know, what, what do you see as some of the most important aspects of successfully training and developing people in a proper program? Well, there's a big difference between education 
and training. Uh, so, I mean, we talk about and use the term a training department or a training program, but often what I see is it ends up being designed as an education program. If you think about how you learn to drive a car, there's two components. First, you need to learn the rules of the road and who has the right of way and a stop sign, things like that. Then you take an education test to prove that, but you're still not ready to drive and get your license until you can prove you can handle and the, the, the actual vehicle and, and parallel park and things like that. And there's a second test, which is your road test. That's the training component. Uh, corporate uh, programs are so often designed to really be education programs, and at the end you, you might have heightened awareness and given really interesting facts, but there was never the follow-through to prove that it changed behaviors or, or, or impacted the, the business. And, and do you find that that's you know, more true at the the, the larger the company, the, the harder it is to see that because, you know, just getting those um, programs off the ground might be the, the biggest challenge. And then, you know, you do all of that and actually get the training going, then do, do people ever really have time to go back and, you know, gauge effectiveness? Chris, that question could probably be a half-hour show right there. Uh, but <laughs> the reality is it depends a lot on how closely the topic is related to the business needs. Uh, so, uh, are, you know, as an HR department or talent function, are you able to present a sales course to the sales folks about why margins are eroding or you're losing market share in a certain segment, or are you uh, presenting fluffery that is, you know, a lot of HR buzz terms, uh, because those type of, the difference between are you connected with the balance sheet and, and the headaches that your, your functions are, are enduring at night uh, versus uh, kind of an HR push, uh, that usually results in, is it a training or is it an education program? Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, one of our favorite questions to ask our guests, and maybe you'll have a great answer for us, is uh, what are you reading right now, and can you tell us about it? <laughs> well, uh, right now I'm uh, knee-deep with a client, so I'm, I'm reacclimating myself with something called the Globe Studies, which if you, uh, you don't know, is definitely worth checking out. It came out of a uh, UPenn or the Wharton School, and it, it basically is, is a lot of data around how uh, managers in large global organizations react to all those dimensions. Uh, but instead of one book, uh, I guess my emphasis is do not uh, equate corporate culture with global cultures, and you can measure and impact them the same way, but don't underestimate that, uh, that global culture piece. And, you know, there's uh, many books out there, the Gert Hofsteds, the Fonz Trompenars, Charles Hampton Turner's, Richard Lewis is doing some great stuff. Uh, so HR and talent professionals should probably take a moment to, to read a little bit on the, those dimensions of cultures or what's called culture clusters, and they go a long way to uh, adapting different talent programs across borders and cultures. So just a little bit of light reading, it sounds like, for you. Yeah, All right. right. <laughs> Duly noted. All right. Well, uh, really appreciate you having uh, you on the show. Uh, you've kind of enlightened us on a lot of some really great topics, especially on this uh, idea of global management and through culture. You know, how can people learn more about uh, your firm if they're interested in uh, in reaching out? Well, the, probably the easiest way is our website, so uh, uh, donaldcon.com, and that has our, our our services and some white papers that have been published elsewhere as well, and course our contact information phone number so that's probably the best way to go find us and i'll make sure we have this right it'll be d-o-n-a-l-c-o-n-n.com is that correct that's correct all right we'll make sure nobody uh misspells it there and they can get to you if they want to and uh again really appreciate you having on the show remind everyone we'll have the summary of this interview and the book that he listed and 
course, uh, the website and all that good information on our blog here in the next couple weeks. But uh, there was certainly a million things more we could have talked about. So, Donald, hopefully we can have you come back at some point and uh, enlighten us on a few more things. I would love that. Thank you, Chris. All right. Up next, we'll have Lynn Knight, uh, who will join me after this quick commercial break. Imagine what it would feel like to lose everything. Your job, your home, your family, your dignity. This has happened to thousands of the men, women, veterans, and young adults we serve at Working Wardrobes. What do we do to help? We provide career development services, life skills workshops, job skills training. We provide the perfect interview outfit, and we get clients placed in jobs. Call Working Wardrobes, 714-210-2460. Donate, volunteer, invest, hire. When it comes to pioneers in their respective industries, we all know the Apples, Starbucks, and Trader Joe's of the world. In the realm of recruiting, Decision Toolbox is the industry's best-kept secret. With 90% of their business from referrals and repeat customers, for over 20 years, Decision Toolbox's U.S.-based team of recruiters, sourcers, professional writers, quality personnel, and tech support has perfected a Six Sigma approach to talent management. No matter the size of the project, Decision Toolbox delivers incredible results. A cost per hire less than half of what contingency firms charge. With the winning candidate presented in an average of 14 days. All with a 12-month candidate warranty. With results like that, Decision Toolbox won't be a secret for long. Visit us at www.dtoolbox.com for more information. Welcome back to the Talent Talk Radio Show. As a reminder, if you have a question for my next guest, uh, you can send it to us via Twitter. Let's pop in that question, add the hashtag Talent Talk, or add in at PeopleG2. We'll find it. We'll try to ask it here before we run out of time and, and get your question answered. But um, again, don't forget, you can find us on TalentTalkRadio.com, on the podcast app, in, on your iPhone or iTunes, and of course, any way that you can get to iHeartRadio, we're syndicated with them, and you can find the show past shows and listen to them all you want so let's go ahead and get to my uh next guest uh, lynn knight president of talent function uh lynn welcome to the show thanks chris it's great to be here and love the program oh thank you so please tell everyone a little bit about yourself uh, what your company does and you know maybe what your your plans are here for 2016 and uh engaging the talent around you and your company uh, certainly. Well, um, again, my name is Lynn Knight. I uh, live in Oklahoma City, and it was about, well, just short of 20 years ago that I actually got my start in talent acquisition. I, I first worked in an employment agency setting before moving into an IT uh, direct placement firm and, and then made my way uh, into corporate recruiting and, and did that for a period of 10 years, and I'm still a recruiter at heart. But about uh, right at 10 years ago, I was given the opportunity to really begin my role as a consultant, um, specializing in, in recruiting process and technology, and that's what I've been doing ever since, albeit um, while working my way up the, the leadership ladder. Uh, because for the last 18 months, I've been honored to serve as the president of Talent Function. Um, my responsibilities here fall in the areas of business development, supporting both sales and marketing, as well as our business partnerships, and then also for truly managing the business through uh, performance management of our consultants, uh, engaging them as employees, and and what we kind of affectionately call care and feeding of our of our team. Um, but I also get to do some delivery of consulting services 
on an ongoing basis. But uh, as far as talent function is concerned, we are a, a truly a boutique-style consulting firm, um, and we considered our mission to uh, reinvent talent acquisition for, for leading global organizations. And, and really what that means is uh, we help clients with their uh, with their strategies in relation to talent acquisition, their, their business processes that support that, um, as well as the technology side of things, identifying, implementing, and optimizing those, those solutions. And um, what makes us different is, you know, not only do we really have a, a passion for making our clients, for, uh, making our clients successful, but uh, we're all, uh, each of our consultants, experts, come from a recruiting discipline, a recruiting background. So we really do have direct experience, and, and that kind of makes a difference for us. So in regards to, to 2016, um, well, you know, we're, we're in talent acquisition and talent management, so we kind of have to drink our own Kool-Aid, the things that we tell our clients to do. Uh, for us, I guess that means, uh, you know, we're always working to engage um, our, our employees by constantly sharing, you know, what our vision and values are and, and the behaviors of, uh, with those who work for us. But, uh, uh, you know, we also continue that down the path of, of employee performance uh, throughout the year and really reinforcing, you know, our culture. And, and we're, we're blessed to have a great group of folks and, and just a really fun team to work with. Um, so we're always trying to strive to ensure that we're measuring up to, uh, you know, a positive engagement, positive culture. Well, that's, that's great, Lynn. It was a quality introduction there. I appreciate kind of giving us that uh, good overview and perspective. Uh, not sure if it's possible for you to get a little closer to your, whatever you're talking into there. You're a little bit soft, but uh, sure. uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about, uh, you know, within your company, uh, Talent Function. Uh, you know, one of your passions is helping organizations, you know, maximize the talent acquisition opportunities and to, you know, sustain their, their company culture, something we talk about all this all the time. So, uh, maybe let's kind of look at these one at the one at a time. You know, when it comes to talent acquisition, what does this process? When does it become ineffective or you know kind of un, unsuitable or unsustainable? Let's, let's say. Um, well, from a process perspective, I mean, I'm you know I think that one of the things that that we typically see, not just in our clients but in organizations as a whole, is that recruiters uh, kind of get hooked on. You know the buzzwords and and trying to figure out if if a candidate is a is a skill set match and and really nothing else. I mean, don't get me wrong; they've they've got to have the professional and technical skills. You know, those those are important, but that's really just a single part of the equation. Um, you know, when recruiters are going through the process of screening resumes or applications online or otherwise, and they're you know they're maybe even asking out of the box pre-screen questions, assuming they're actually pre-screening candidates. And and like I say, they they just kind of get into this habit of, of hitting the buzzword button, and then they rubber stamp, approve it, and pass it on to the hiring managers for consideration. Um, and I think that even you know beyond that, when the candidates get, uh, get scheduled to interview with the hiring managers, it's pretty likely that those managers haven't really been properly trained as interviewers. They're likely asking you know ineffective interview questions. Um, and they, while they may know the desired skills inside out and backwards, they... they I think they rarely, uh, or at least incorrectly, identify things like culture fit or, or leadership capabilities and the kinds of things that really make an individual perform and, and develop and, and really affect the, the organization as a whole. So, you know, in terms of, of ineffective or unsustainable, I, I always think of, you know, the fact that we've been fooled into thinking that hiring the most skilled candidate will produce the highest achiever, and, and that's, I just think that's a tad wrong. I think there's a big
bigger element to it. Um, you know, the, the skills define what the work is, but the culture really defines how the work gets done. Well, you bring up a fantastic point because I can't tell you how many times, even personally I've had this where people on the resume, they, they hit every box, and yet you talk to them and you go, how did this person ever pass these <laughs> courses? How do they ever get this certification? To, right. you know, to, to get those boxes, they don't seem to know anything that they're doing. I mean, it's just uh, you can have them take assessments or do different things, and you find all sorts of problems. But, uh, you know, it, it's, it's fascinating. So you have to kind of have that, that second layer here. So, you know, how do we really challenge and test that they are, that they can do what we expect them to do? And then, you know, how do we challenge and test that they are a fit within the company? And that, that's a really hard thing for people you know, I've, I've found as we have grown that that becomes harder and harder because you have to educate those people, those managers who are talking to the people first and the, the recruiters that are working on it first. And it becomes it's a lot easier when you're the only one doing all the interviews um, as the entrepreneur. But, you know, as that the, the, the monster grows, um, it becomes a bigger challenge for companies. It, it, yeah, and so- we, we, actually, we actually had a client who kind of faced that problem. I mean, they'd gotten to the point where they were hiring virtually anybody who had – worked in a similar role, had a similar job title, and, and particularly in a, in a similar organization. Um, and, and like I say, no regard for anything else. They were really hitting on that skill set match. And, and so what they did, they hired Talent Function to come in and, and really design and develop an assessment and selection strategy that included a number of, of different things that, like you said, got to the next level of do, you know, is it just words on a resume or do they really get it? And, and those kinds of things included something I think is critical is behavioral-based interviewing. We can talk more about that if you wish. Uh, you know, predictive performance indicators, the kinds of things that will actually tell whether that person's going to be successful down the road. Um, interview feedback analysis. And, and then really throughout all of that, articulation of the, the company culture and, and assessing that fit because you know, even if they can do the job that they say on on the resume, does can they do it the way that, that your company wants to? And is that you know who you really wish to, to have you do it? Yeah, and sometimes it can be a, a a bigger process that you know a formal process that a company could put in place to challenge those things. And I've also seen, and we've we've even utilized some really fun things um, that are really simple to kind of get a clear picture of that person. Um, we ask a single question, you know. Please tell us the difference between Neil Armstrong, Lance Armstrong, and Louis Armstrong. <laughs> and you know, it, and it's not a gotcha question. We don't ask them an interview. We ask them on their, you know, ahead of time on it. It's a, a question that they they can go on the internet. I mean, they can look it up. You know, so this is not about how, do they know who all those people are. But it's fascinating the sometimes the cleverness of the answers we get. The ridiculously. Uh, incomplete and un- inaccurate answers we get, you know. So you, I, I always find I get a pretty good idea, especially for certain positions with critical thinking skills or research and, you know, how that person engaged with that question that's a little... Uh, uh, but, you know, people can find things like that. Sometimes that's enough to just start to filter out a little bit for you. Uh, have, have you seen any other kinds of, you know, things like that or tricks or things that people use uh, to kind of to help them, you know, weed down to the maybe the best of the best when they're considering for hiring a particular position? Well, golly, I don't know that I've ever heard anything that competes with the Armstrong question. That's, uh, <laughs> that's a good one to say the least. But, um, no, I think there's some creative ways out there, and, and I think it really depends upon, you know, the company and the way that they, uh, you know, again, God, I hate to keep 
beating the dead horse, but the culture word, you know, if, if a company, you know, likes to have a good time and, and is loose, then I think that then that style of, of interview question goes goes more aptly to that. If, if it's not their style, there's still other ways to get in there and, and dig deeper without, uh, you know, without uh, being somebody you're not. So um, I can't think of any particular examples off the top of my head now that, I'm, now that I've got the definitions of the Armstrongs in my head. <laughs> Well, good. Maybe, maybe maybe you can use that one. You know, it, it'll be your next uh, consulting gig. Will be I'll, uh, I'll give that you know, a shot for sure. Great idea. Yeah. <laughs> Suddenly, all my applicants will have these much, much more formal answers. But <laughs> I know. You know, it, sometimes companies really hit that wall, and you started to talk about a little bit. Uh, you know, about their in their talent acquisitions. Um, and you said you had a client there that was just you know kind of taking anybody because they hit that wall. And we see that with. Uh, companies have this problem regionally. They have this with maybe particular positions um, where they just kind of, you know, the, drill, the well runs dry. Um, they're not just attracting that top talent anymore. So what can they do to really, you know, revitalize this area? And does this, you know, come down to recruiters and hiring managers, or is there more to it than that? Okay, good question. Let's, let's take the first, or the last, I guess, part of that first as to who's responsible. I mean, I think, you know, when I think about the, the culture element in particular, and again, we can come full circle to skills and what have you, but, you know, where you think about, like, branding, uh, which really falls on kind of the marketing department of the organization, you know, and and, and reinforcing that culture and what have you, I mean, that, that call, it comes to corporate communications, senior leaders and executives and, and such, and, and there will always be a need for that, but when I think about, you know, the talent acquisition process, we really had the opportunity to, to really limit the need to fill in the gaps by, you know, recruiting, screening, identifying, uh, selecting, you know, not just top-performing talent, but talent that already fits that organization's culture. And, and I think that when you think of it from that perspective, uh, then it really falls on the shoulders of, of those involved in the talent acquisition process. And to your point, recruiters and hiring managers. So is it just them that's responsible in the grand scheme of things? No, but I think they're, they're, they have... Uh, a better potential line of impact to that than, than perhaps anybody else in the organization. And, and we can talk about a few ways that I think that, you know, that they can collaborate to help do those things. Sure. So what, what are some of the things you think they should do? Well, uh, you know, I mean, I think about, and again, you know, you tie it, but let's, let's tie it back to branding for a second. You know, if you, if you think about in marketing, the brand is how the organization is, is perceived in the market. And, of course, you know, you've got to develop a good relationship with your, with your target market. Well, market, rather. That same thing is true, you know, from the candidate experience. Um, and that cultural element, you know, I always think of it as the experience that candidates have when they interact with the organization. And so when you look at it from that perspective and our opportunity as recruiters, hiring managers, and an organization as a whole, um, I, I think there's, there's some things that, that we can do, not the least of which is, you know, having a well-defined social media brand. I mean, I think that that can attract the best passive candidates just by having their word out there. Um, and, you know, according to the research I've been reading, you know, companies know they not only have to sell their the cultures just to attract, but, but really to influence decisions about where people work. I mean, that's just becoming more and more important, and thank goodness. Um, so, you know, it's the social media side. I mean, it's really the ideal medium for us to kind of broadcast our mission statement, our, our values, our, 
our, um, you know, where we want to be as an organization, and that, that helps uh, individual candidates understand better about the opportunities and, and how they perhaps fit in uh, based on their interests, their passions, their experience, and what have you. And, and feel free to stop me at any point. I'll just kind of go down you know, the list that I'm thinking of, and it also includes the company website, um, and specifically the career section, because you know, a lot of times that's where, that's the first place candidates really go to, again, identify those job opportunities, but also really uh, determine the, the potential for cultural fit. And I think that, you know, if you consider that that career section, you know, an advertisement for, for attracting job seekers, then we've not only got to put the, you know, just like a, a candidate puts their resume out there with those buzzwords, we can't just throw the job description out there with buzzwords. Uh, we've got to build in the cultural elements of how we do the job, not just what we do. So, and I know you had a, I think you had a, uh, a guest back in January that talked a lot about the job description element and making sure that those incorporated more than just the tasks. Um, but I, but I just encourage companies to to really incorporate specific references uh, to the culture. Well, and um, you've really hit on two pretty strong points here about we have this opportunity in social media and on our website to really talk about and. Well, it's advertise ourselves or it's to really, you know, be open and honest about what the company is doing and what, what they stand for. But, you know, to, to go back a question before in, in trying to figure out best candidates, that's another area that I've always found fascinating is has the candidate taken the time to try to figure out if you're a culture match for them? You know, have they explored your site? Have they, you know, looked and... and even if they don't understand it, because you may have people at all different levels, they may not understand what everything is, but if they've taken that opportunity to try to understand it and try to interpret it and, and, and interact with it, they have a better chance of understanding if the company is really a value. So that's another fun way, too, is, you know, we have, that's a question I ask very often to, to candidates, and I say it openly because they should be, maybe they would listen to a show if they were interested in the job, but, you know, if, if they've taken that opportunity to try to figure it out, then that shows me that they have some bit of interest of actually working here um, for a career, not just for you know a paycheck or a, a temporary stopover. Um, do you see that as well with, with, with what Canada, how they interact with the company is an important aspect as well? Well, to a degree, but if you think about the sheer volume of candidates that, you know, and the applications that, that companies receive and the need to screen and weed out those candidates, not, you know, again, based on a number of criteria, I, I think that more often than not, we're, they're not, either one or two things are happening. They're either not doing the research and the information is available to them, or as I'm saying, more more likely is the information is not available and they don't understand the culture. So right, right. Uh, I think there, you know, it could be six and one half dozen the other, but my, my, I would suspect that we would see a lower, you know, candidate to job application ratio if if more candidates were doing the research up front. The fact that we make that information available to them, though, and and really include it from, you know, social media, website, job descriptions, etc., I think that that would, in effect, have the, uh, the outcome that we desire, which is they screen themselves out by saying, you know what, sounds like a good company, but they don't do things the way I do. I don't think I'm going to be a fit there. And they go down the road. Right, right. And, of course, it's also a challenge, too, for Firms that are trying to pull in people uh, in a, that are—it's extremely competitive, right? You may be trying to to pull someone from another company because you're so desperate to fill this position. So they may not be looking for a job, 
Um, so they, they may not be on your site and on your social media because they're, they're perfectly happy where they are, and you're you're trying to get them to consider coming over to your company because you're desperate, right? For whatever reason. I mean, we've seen those scenarios. Yeah, I, yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it happens. So, so you, you know, and and what might some people might consider this kind of highly saturated market for for business consulting. Um, what do you? What do you do within your own organization to ensure that you know you're hiring and maintaining a team of, of different ma- difference makers? Uh, you know, especially for your clients. Yeah. So, so when we're looking to to grow our organization, I mean, like like any other uh, company out there, you know, we, we seek to understand um, if you know if, if candidates have the the training and the education to do what we do, and um, and certainly the experience. That, you know, meaning. I mean, in our case, the ability and the behaviors to, to really do the job well and also to, to lead others. Because one of the things we do is we typically pair our consultants up on projects or even more so, depending on a, if it's a grander scale uh, engagement. Um, you know, we rarely work alone on a project. And so uh, one of those uh, resources typically is in a lead role and others in a, in a you know, consulting role. And so we want to be able to uh, ensure that, that that leadership capability is there. But, but most critically, I think, you know, we want to ensure that the candidates who come, who are considering us, do the the job the way that our company does. I mean, we're we again, we're a boutique style consulting firm. We're not one of the big four out there, and as a result, we don't do things the same way, and we love it that way. Don't want to be the the big guy per se. So, um, so one of the things that we have to do is is really look at ways that um, you know that ensure that we're hiring someone who who's going to. Uh, really represent us and our style of consulting delivery. And then, you know, and one of the other factors that, that we like to consider, and I, I've kind of become a fan of in, incorporating in, in interviews, is the, the learning agility side, you know, because that's really a, a strong predictor that somebody's going to perform well in, in challenging first-time, you know, consulting-type situations. Um, if they have applied, you know, if they've learned something in the past, they've, they've had an experience, um, they've changed their, their uh, actions as a result, you know, that really shows that they're adaptable and willing to, uh, to grow as, as they become uh, a senior consultant. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, as, as the leader of your company and, you know, kind of looking forward here through the rest of the year and beyond and, We've talked about some important areas like culture and engagement and talent management. Where, where are you really seeing you know the biggest challenges that you, know, you feel like you'll face? Maybe not only internally, but you know for your clients through that that, that lens of consulting. Where are the, where are the areas that you know you're kind of you're seeing the most work that needs to be done coming up here? You know, again, as a small company, I, I consider us blessed. You know, we really have a good, well-established culture that that everyone in the organization buys into. The the engagement level of our of our team members is, is strong. I mean, we you know, we recently did a, a survey uh, a couple of months ago that that uh, asked them to weigh in on on their enthusiasm about the mission of Talent Function and um, whether they're surrounded by people who share their values and things like that. And, and we really got good feedback uh, about that. And so we we consider ourselves fortunate. But I guess for me, just because. Our organization is so focused on talent acquisition. That is our niche area. That is our area of expertise. Um, it's my job to ensure that our people are continually growing and developing, um, all the while remaining true to that to that highly focused service offering. So for me, it's it's making sure that 
even though we live within our bubble of talent acquisition, that we're constantly providing our consultants opportunities to grow and develop and do different things so that they don't stagnate and become disengaged. Well, and, and those are all, a, it seems like, a really important things uh, for everyone to be thinking about going forward, whether you're uh, a consulting firm like yourself or you're, you know, in the business of making pencils. I mean, these are all important things that we need to be worried about and uh, sort of planning for as the year uh, comes forward. And I know one of the ways that I do that is by uh, reading books and getting inspiration from, from others. So um, uh, one of our favorite questions to ask our guests is, are you reading a book right now? And can you tell us about it? Yeah, um, actually, I just got it as a gift a couple of weeks ago from uh, our CEO um, during our um, strategic planning meeting. She passed on to me uh, a book called The Five Languages of Appreciation in the Workplace. Um, subtitle is Empowering Organizations by Encouraging People. And it's by Gary Chapman, who uh, who did the, the Five Love Languages, along with uh, Paul White. And... Um, uh, you know, it's really meant to apply kind of a similar understanding, I guess, of, of the love languages, but within a professional lens instead of personal. And um, one of the things we've been working on internally is to really better understand the differences. Even though we all, you know, kind of do the same thing and we all buy into the same culture and, and have a real good family uh, atmosphere, we're all still different people and we all, uh, you know, appreciate I guess we like to be appreciated in different ways, and so this book is giving me insights into a better understanding how our people like to be complimented, how they like to be rewarded, and, and those things will, I think, even further enhance kind of the work environment, the engagement, if you will. Well, it sounds like a fascinating book. I'm, I'm familiar with the Love Languages book and really enjoyed reading those, and those certainly... Um, you know, really helped uh, on a personal level have a better understanding of, um, you know, that type of uh, scenario. But to tra- translate to business really sounds fascinating how they could do that and come up with maybe some of the, those really kind of big, impactful ahas that, you know, the other books, a series of books really uh, were able to deliver. So, um, you know, uh, Lynn, it's been fascinating and, and really fun having you uh, here for the last uh, 20 or minutes or so. Um, if people are interested in learning more about your company, uh, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, if they want to know about the company, I encourage them to, to visit our website at www.talentfunction.com. Um, if they want to reach out to me personally, my email address is lynn.knight, that's L-Y-N-N dot K-N-I-G-H-T, at talentfunction.com. And uh, they could also get hold of me on Twitter. My handle is at Knight. And don't forget, we will post a summary of this uh, show on our uh, website, on our blog at peopleg2.com, and we'll list the book, um, any of the other links or important information uh, that Lynn brought up here today. We will certainly uh, have it there in a summary, just in case you're listening and did not have a pen or a pencil to, to write some of this stuff down. So, uh, again, Lynn, thank you so much for being on the show. We'd love to have you come back at some point and give us an update and continue the conversation. I'd love that, Chris. Thank you so much. All right, so uh, thank you again uh, to both of my guests. Hopefully uh, you all uh, gained something uh, important that you might uh, use in your uh, career going forward. Next week we will have Kathy Hammond, Account Manager at Talent Assessments with PSI Services. Uh, Kathy and I met at a Disrupt HR event. We both were speakers there. And then we'll have uh, Tamara Chandler, the CEO and founder of People Firm, uh, will join me, uh, both of them live, uh, 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Uh, on Tuesday, so don't forget to tune in. Until then, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today. 
You've been listening to Talent Talk Radio Show, brought to you by People G2.